Hello, everyone, and welcome to the High Stakes Fantasy Network. I'm your host, Greg Ambrosius, and I'm joined today by a special friend. He is Charlie Wiegert, the founder of CDM Fantasy Sports and a fellow member of the FSTA Hall of Fame. Charlie, welcome to my little podcast. Thanks, Greg. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's good to see you again, for sure. So I know you're not a technical person, and we're a little late here because we had a little trouble getting going here, but who the hell helped you with the laptop and the camera and the microphone? I know you didn't do all this yourself. No, John, John Bryson took care of it all for me, and and uh, we, we tried our best to try to get it all to work, and I'm, I'm tell you, I'm a little surprised it's working as well as it is. So. <laughs> I am too, because when I talked to you 10 minutes ago, it didn't sound this good, nor did you look this good, but it looks good right now. So, all right. So you started Diamond Challenge 31 years ago, but you've been retired like three or four years, I think. How's retirement these days? Retirement's good. I'm um, very active in the Masonic fraternity. Uh, it gives me something to do with my spare time. I'm Actually, the deputy grandmaster of the Grand Lodge of Ancient Free and Accepted Masons of the state of Missouri. And next year in September, I'll go in, I'll be the grandmaster. So it gives me something to do. I always thought you were the grand pooba. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <you know? laughs> okay, so we're going to talk about the Diamond Challenge and the salary cap games. I love history. I love talking about this. And you and I go way, way back. So, But let's talk about where you were let's say 1990, before you got started in the fantasy sports industry, what the hell were you doing for a living? Well, I was, I was working for uh, a chain of newspapers in the St. Louis area called the Suburban Journals. Um, now it seems kind of remarkable. We, we put out 880,000 papers a week every Wednesday. And, uh, and that seems like a really big number compared to how it used to be. And, and uh, competed with the Post-Dispatch here in St. Louis. I sold advertising for it and, and uh, really enjoyed it. And that's Kind of how where I got my start in the in fantasy sports. A bunch of sports writers at the newspaper decided they were going to start a fantasy sports league in 1984, and they asked me if I wanted to play, and uh, said sure. And um, they thought that you know they're going to want this poor little advertising guy without any problem. And I wound up winning the winning the league three years in a row at the very <laughs> beginning, and uh, and it seemed like the strategy after that all came to how they were going to try to find a way to beat me, which. Which uh, didn't didn't happen too much. I'm still in that same league to this wow. day, and I won the league again last year. And I, I think in the in the 34 years of this league, I've won it 18 times. So I'm a little wow. ahead of half. So it's <laughs> it's uh it's good, and it's it's your standard uh, five by five rotisserie scoring league. And uh, really? uh, we we can keep a limited amount of keepers from the year before with uh, giving them a a raise in salary. And but pretty much it's a, re a redraft league and. I really enjoy it, and and uh, I think there's only two or three guys that are left in the league that have been in it the whole time. So, wow! Yeah, it's excellent. Fun. Yeah. So, how did you ever run into Carol and Brian Matthews then? So, it, 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 so I started playing in '84, and I and I was in a couple leagues, and I I, I like playing fantasy baseball, and I, I, I looked for other leagues, and uh, um, I found a couple online ones uh, that I was able to play not online because of course there was no no online back then, but I, I found some other leagues around the country that uh, people were offering games. I played in some of those. I got some more local leagues, and it was a local league I got into with, with a bunch of aerospace engineers, a bunch of them that worked at the time was McDonnell Douglas here in St. Louis and, and Northrop out, out in uh, California, and uh, um, a, a, a mutual friend of ours, a guy named John Mudweiler, uh, who, who used to visit a place called Happy Joe's Pizza Parlor, and the guy who owned that, Rick Simmons, was in one of my fantasy leagues, and we played a lot together. 
he, he convinced me to me and Rick, the team together to go into his aerospace league. And I, I never did really understand their algorithm for the scoring, but I, I understood uh, players a lot better than I thought any of them did. And I thought I could hold my own pretty good. So we got in this league. I remember going to the first draft. I was up in some, some offices that you had to have a code to be able to get in. I guess some kind of government facility that, that Boeing was using. And we were using some kind of satellite to hook up with the guys out in California. I thought we were all going to wind up getting arrested by the end of the day. Somebody's going to walk in and say, what are you guys doing in here? And uh, we held we held our draft. Um, I found out real quick that the way their league worked is when you were buying players, it was real money. So if you wanted Ricky Henderson on your team and you were going to spend $1,200 for him, I mean, that's $1,200 out of your pocket to be able to have him. And and so it became a kind of a fine line to figure out um, – how you could get a really good team but not spend a whole lot of money because you could spend more money and and at the end wind up winning and come out behind because it costs you more to buy your team than what it was worth. Yeah. And, and there, there was always a couple of guys in that league who are always willing to do that, spend big money on guys. So it was mainly finding value with players. And uh, I was in the league for like three or four years, held my own pretty good, ended up second and third uh, three times. And uh, – and always came out ahead on the money side of it, which was kind of the goal. And it was in that league that uh, Brian Matthews was playing in. And uh, and so Brian approached me um, one year and, and said him and his wife were a little bored with uh, with things over at McDonnell Douglas. And uh, they wanted to do something else. And they thought running a, a fantasy baseball on a national basis might be a fun thing to do. And, and did I have any ideas how to set up a game and do it? And... Uh, and I thought, yeah, sounds like fun. It just takes my hobby to another level and everything. So, uh, so that's the first year it was uh, Carol's Fantasy Baseball Challenge, yep. and um, uh, that's where I came up with the idea for the salary cap leagues of putting salaries on the players and and um, uh, using uh, this the system that we do is basically five by five scoring, and um, uh, we ran small ads inside of your publication and your magazines back then, and and some of the other publications that were out there. And I think we had 255 people that signed up to play the first year <laughs> in Carroll's. And we ran a mid-season game and then ran a basketball game. And then uh, by the time we were ready to start uh, with it the next year, um, we had decided if this was going to you know, be something big and we were going to do something with it, uh, we, we need to get a big sponsor to be able to do it. And uh, Sporting News was here in St. Louis, so we thought, well, let's approach them. And, um, and so it's, it's kind of a strange quirk. I was at the uh, Sporting News offices here in St. Louis to basically pick up a copy of the basketball magazine to see our ad inside of their basketball magazine. And uh, as I'm, I'm sitting in the guy's ad rep's office waiting for him to bring a magazine by, um, a guy walks by that I knew named Gary Levy. And um, we, were, we were acquainted from having played softball against each other for about <laughs> – uh, 10 years in the in the media league, which had all of the media companies in St. Louis, we played softball against each other. And Gary was a really good player, played center field for the Sporting News. And, and uh, you know, over the course of eight, 10 years, you get to know guys on other teams when you're playing softball and everything. So he stops by and says, hey, how you doing? I said, great. And asked what I was doing there. And I explained it to him. And I said, you know, but what I really want to do is meet this guy named Topaz, who's your general manager, because I wanted to pitch him on our fantasy baseball games. And he says, well, that's my boss. I'll set up a, a meeting with you. And wow. sure enough, about a week later, 
on a Tuesday morning at 7.30. We were, uh, we were meeting Topaz over at his office, and, and Brian and Carol did a great job uh, uh, helping put together a presentation to be able to present to him and everything. And, and uh, we went over to presentation, and he was kind of half-heartedly paying attention and everything. And when we got to the final page and, and showed that we projected the Sporting News' uh, royalties off it was going to be a million dollars a year, he said, okay, well, let's, let's get a cup of coffee and go through this again. And yeah. so, so that's what we did. And, and he said, okay, well, it sounds good to me. And he says, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to want fantasy games in four sports, you know, baseball, football, basketball, and hockey, because we have all four of those sports magazines. And we said, no problem. <laughs> so, so we had to come up with games and, and uh, we, we had to really uh, rush to get them done. Um, uh, I think we had like maybe four weeks to get all the rules and everything in for their first magazine. And then we had to turn around and put a football game together, which none of us really had thought about a whole lot. And so we yeah. just kind of copied what we did for diamond challenge as far as scoring categories and player salaries and things like that. And, uh, came up, came up with games and, uh, uh all worked pretty well. And, uh, and, um, I, I remember, um, um, we were working out of Brian and Carol's office, uh, out of their house. And we had it, we bought a copy machine and stuck it in their basement so we could print reports and mail them out. And, uh, I, I go by this post office in Florissant, uh, about every other day or so to see how many entries were coming in, 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 uh, in, in late March, the first year in, in, uh, 92. And, uh, I go over to the post office box and put the key and open the key and there'd be, you know, 10, 12 entries inside there. I pull them out and all that. I, I wander in there one day in, in late March, opened up the mailbox, and there's a little yellow card in there that says, come to the front counter. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I got to tell you, if there was ever a point in my life when I was extremely nervous and was really worried about what might be coming here, that was the moment. Because back then, if you remember, we weren't really sure if fantasy sports were gambling or not. You yeah. know? And yeah. so here's all these entries showing up in the mail with all kinds of money inside the envelopes. And so I walk up to the counter kind of sheepishly, you know, to hand the guy the yellow card, thinking that I'm going to look around the corner and watch for some police guys to come after me and all that. And the, and the post, post guy says, oh, yeah. He says, oh, you got way too much mail. We can't fit it in your box. So we put it in a, a thing. Let me get it for you. So he goes back in the back, comes back out with those great big white things and had about seven, 800 uh, entries inside uh, of it. Yeah. And I, I think that's when we that was kind of the defining moment when we knew this was going to go. And, uh, we wound up with a little over 4,000 entries in that first, Mm -hmm. that first game. And, uh, everything just took off from there. It was, uh, it was like a dream come true. Yeah. So you actually invented the salary cap format in fantasy sports, right? Right. Nobody else had done that before. Nobody else had done it before. We got copied by a couple people (laughs) afterwards. as this happens all the time, but yeah, uh, it was it was kind of kind of my little brainchild. Yeah, pretty cool. So CBC Distribution that was on the lawsuit. Tell people what CBC Distribution stood for, and then tell what CDM Fantasy Sports stood for. Yeah, it was a CBC Distribution Marketing was an acronym for CDM Inc. And uh, it it, it uh, some people always thought it stood stood for Charlie, Brian, and Carol. Yep. Uh, Carol used to say it stood for Carol, Brian, and Charlie. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and uh, uh, but it, the CDM just wound up being an acronym of CBC Distribution and Marketing Inc. And it was just a 
no reason for it. Just a name we came up with to file papers with the state and everything like that to get okay. incorporated. So I thought CBC was Carol, Brian, and Charlie. <laughs> no, it was Charlie, <laughs> Brian, and Carol. <laughs> but, uh, so how many years were you with the U.S. Uh, uh, sporting News then before you left? Yeah, there? so uh, our, our, for our contract with the Sporting News was a five-year contract. Okay. Uh, when we got in the year four of it, we got approached by um, MSNBC. I don't know if you remember them from back there. And um, and Gary Levy was working for us at the time, and he was the one who'd made the contacts. And they were very interested in, in having us run fantasy sports games for them. Mm-hmm. And um, our contract with the sporting news is pretty explicit. It was for rotisserie-style fantasy sports games. Mm-hmm. So we came up with the idea that we could run games for MSNBC, and, and we'd make them point-style games. Yeah. And and so that's what we did, and we made them point style games. And uh, uh, Sport News didn't really like that, and uh, they <laughs> sued us, and and I came after us, and uh, uh, wasted a whole lot of money in court in New York and all that. And it, in the end, a lawyer said, "You know, you're going to win this case because the Sporting News has got the definition of what rotisserie is inside of all of their materials and everything. So you'll yeah. wind up winning this case." But it's going to cost you more to win the case than what legal fees are going to be. So it would be better to try to work out a settlement with you if you can. So we we worked out a settlement with them. So it it saved us a bunch of money. And and, and it kind of maybe soured the relationship with them a little bit. And uh, when we got to the end of the five-year cycle, they wanted to raise the royalties of, of what we were paying them for operating the games. And at that time, we started having competition. You might remember other rotisserie style games coming along at that time and that idiot Jeff Thomas up in up in your area in Wisconsin was uh, operating his buff nonsense and, uh, and and so we had some people that were pecking at us and taking customers away and things like that and and uh, we, we basically had to you know get a little smart about our marketing we lowered entry fees and raised prices and things like that so the margins weren't nearly as good and we couldn't afford to pay the sporting news anymore and so we told them no we can't do that. And they said, well, we're going to go find somebody else to run games for us. And, and they did. You know, they hired some fanatics only group, which turned out to be a disaster for them. And, um, and we went and talked to the people at USA Today and Sports Weekly, the Gannett Corporation. And uh, they were very interested in uh, taking over our games and putting their names on them. And so our games all became uh, uh, Gannett, Gannett Publication Games, basically the Baseball Weekly and Sports Weekly titles. We yeah. carried on the name of the games and made it their challenges. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. So, hey, how did you guarantee the prizes when you did a grand prize? Because this is a salary cap game and transactions is a big part of your revenue. Yeah. How'd you come up with the grand prizes? Yeah. Well, you know, um, it, it, the, the main the main volume of the revenue that we had that came in from the games really didn't come from the entry fee so much. It, it came from the transaction fees, right? And it, it was a revenue from transaction fees that kind of ran it all. And so, you know, in the beginning, you know, we started out with a ten thousand dollar grand prize, mm-hmm. and and after running for a couple of years and seeing how much uh, money came in in transaction revenue, we figured out how, how much we could uh, raise the prizes, similar to what you do, you know. And mm-hmm. and uh, there was always that intangible of the transaction fees, but uh, um, you know, we were we were in safe ground the whole time. We were never anywhere close to not having enough revenue to come in to cover what, uh, what prizes wind up being. And we, you know, we divided things down in the, you know, leagues, divisions, and overall. So we were playing prizes out, you know, in three different areas. And, 
everybody seemed to like the format of it and, and uh, you know, probably paid out well over $50 million over the course of the years that we were operating all those games. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Do you remember the first time we met? So it was in Las Vegas, James Sarah did that trade conference, if you'll call it. It was kind yeah. of a bust, but it was great. when We all got together. You and I had talked for years on the phone and never met each other. Never right. met Abel Cadillac, never met Adam Kaplan, any of those guys. And we all yeah. got together there at the Tropicana in August. It was like yeah. 113 degrees or whatever. But that was cool when we first got to meet each other and say, hey, you know what? This industry has a chance to grow, right? Yeah. Yeah, it, it was it was fun. And, and uh, you know, they were they were trying to put on a, uh, a, a conference to try to attract people to be able to come to it. They wanted to pay fantasy sports and all that. And, and it was a I'm sure they were a little disappointed with the amount of people that they had flow through there. We were all there and had our little boost and stuff like yep. that. It gave us a whole lot of time to talk. And I think that's when we started talking about maybe we should form some kind of a trade association. Right. And um the sporting news had a little girl there named Shellhart. I can't remember her first name, but I'm sure you do. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and we made her secretary, so she had to write all the minutes and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, uh, but yeah, we had, that was the beginnings of the Fantasy Sports Trade Association, deciding how we were going to try to establish some things to maybe protect ourselves as an industry. And, and again, you know, it was the gambling issue back then that, that had us all kind of concerned because right. you, you never know how things are going to turn. And so part of our reasoning for doing this was to be able to have some lobbyists in Washington and be able to talk with the leagues. The leagues at the time, you know, hated us. You know, they wanted nothing to do with us. And right. and, uh, and eventually the Players Association decided they liked us because they wanted us to pay them money to be able to use their player names, which yep. we never really had to do, but we did. And, um, and, and so it was kind of out of that that kind of grew the whole industry. Yeah, definitely. So we met there in August, and we did say, let's get together. And Carl Foster, give him credit, he was the one who was kind of pushing. We should have a trade association. Yeah. So we met in March. There were 10 of us that threw $500 in, and we said we were going to sponsor labor. I think it was in Tampa. And yeah. so we sponsored it, $5,000. We had a meeting and we decided to call it the Fantasy Sports Players Association because the number one issue really was companies, game companies, taking the revenue and not paying out prizes. So yeah. we were trying to protect the players. But like you said, you were involved in lobbying. And so you needed a little help with that. There was a guy from Car Arizona. I can't remember that guy's name, but uh, he was a legislator who was trying to make it illegal to play fantasy sports. And yeah. then, like you said, the leagues was another thing. So the Fantasy Sports Players Association was organized in March of 1998. We got $5,000 and somehow Carl spent like $9,500. We were bankrupt before the end of the conference, <laughs> but we, yeah. we got it together. But you know, again, that was a seminal point in our industry, right? When we got together, we formed an association and we all decided we got to meet a couple times a year and get this into a really professional industry. Yeah, it really did. And, and you know, I'm, I'm not sure you ever got enough of the credit that you deserve for making everything work and putting everything together. And, and then you found a way to tie it in with some of the things that, that Krause was doing and, and uh, hard shows and stuff like that, which, you know, we couldn't afford to have those conferences on our right. own because we wouldn't have had enough people. So right. being able to tie in made it affordable for us to be able to do it. And, uh, and, you know, we used to find a way to have some fun with it. I think we used to always have a little bit of golf going on yep. at the same yep. time when we were doing it. And, uh, and those are, those were fun years. I remember having fun with Scott Higgins and, yeah. and, and, and a lot of the boys and, and uh, Scott's gone now, unfortunately, but you know, um, 
he deserved a lot of credit also. I mean, he kind of went on the line, got us uh, the charter in California and, mm-hmm. and uh, took care of a lot of legal issues in the beginning and all that kind of stuff to help yep. things out. You know, we, we had a lot of people who really helped us a lot along the way to be able to get things going. You know, Scott was with EA Sports, and that was yeah. such a big company to be in the fantasy space that they yeah. made us relevant right there, right? They did. They did. And uh, and your your buddy from over at Stats Inc., who, uh, who, yep. who, whose name is slipping my mind. And, my and friend Steve Bird? Come on. Steve Bird. Bird. Yeah, yeah, Steve Bird. How can I forget Steve Bird? He. He was he was very valuable in the very beginning and a very important yep. part of it all and um, and again they, they he, he added some legitimacy to things because Stats Inc was a very established company and providing stats for everybody including the leagues and all that and so having them involved I think made everybody take us maybe a little more seriously than they might not have taken us if we didn't have those people involved. I totally agree with you. And Steve also was good with the players associations yeah. with stats. And so getting John Olshan to work with us and Clay Walker from football was, was very important. So yeah, yeah, it was great. You know, those early years of the trade association conferences were so much fun. We had Gil Brandt there. He would go golfing with oh, us. He was great. Yeah. I loved him. And you know, he, I don't know if everybody ever gives him credit for being as smart as he's always been, oh, right. but boy, whenever he told you about a player that was going to turn out to be, the next best thing, man, he could nail every one of them. No wonder the Cowboys were so good. They had him around to help them with their scouting and figure out players. That yeah. guy was really sharp. He knew that kid's uh, high school, what town he was yep. born in, all that kind of stuff. Gil is the best, and he was yeah. great to hang out with us. But the trade conferences were great. We had guest speakers of Tug McGraw. We had Raleigh Fingers. We had Harmon Killebrew. I mean, they were the good yeah. times. Okay, let's get back to your diamond challenge then. So what year did you go to USA Today? Uh, it would have, it would have been, uh, 2008, 2009 is, uh, is, is when we made, when we made the switch, we, uh, we ha- had a five-year run with the sporting news and, uh, and then switched over and, and, uh, things were pretty seamless on our end. Um, uh, what the sporting news found out and what we knew was going to wind up happening was the customers were very loyal to us. They were loyal to CDM fantasy sports and they were loyal to the people who were running the games. And, and they realized that all the sporting news involvement was just having their name on the game, but they had absolutely nothing to do with the operation of running it. And so for the first couple of years, they were our biggest competition because they put the, whole, the games out there and they tried to get somebody to copy them and, and run them as good as they could. And, and uh, the Fanatics only guys just had all kinds of problems with it and trying to make things work. And, you know, fantasy guys, if you can't get the stats to them on time and they can't make decisions yeah. – and they can't make lineup changes. They, they 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 give up on you really fast, you know. And I think that was a lot of their problem was trying to do that. They try to use some phone automated system rather than being able to call in and talk to the commissioner and all that. So, it, it, you know, thank thank goodness they they tried all the stupid stuff they did so that our so that our customers all stayed with us and continued playing our games. And I'm sure to, I'm sure to this day there are guys that. This will be their 32nd year playing Diamond Challenge. You yeah. know, I mean, our, yeah. we, we've had a lot of loyal customers through the years that that, that just continue to play the game. And, and it's a great farm, an entertainment farm. You know, I mean, I used to spend a lot of time on the phone and talking to a lot of customers and things like that. And I think it's one of the most rewarding experiences of the, of the whole history of everything is the time that we're able to spend with people. And uh, Mike Siegel up in New York and and other people. And, and uh um, 
you know, they were very complimentary and of us and, and very supportive of us. And they would do whatever they can to try to help us. And, you know, there were a couple of points there where we weren't sure the game was going to be out there the next year. And, and uh, when they were going through transitions on ownerships and all that, and, yeah. you know, they all hung in there and, and were loyal and waiting for us. And, and they wanted nothing more than for us to be able to offer the games for them. So, yeah. you know, you're their hero now because you've taken them on and you're running the games for them and so they can continue to play. Well, we're trying. They still ask for Mary, though, so forget about me. They ask for Mary. <laughs> the customer support that she would give them. Some of these older guys don't like the computer as much. You know, so. <laughs> no, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, they're kind of like you. But so <laughs> the highest grand prize you got with them, I believe USA Today, was fifty thousand dollars. Was it correct? Yeah, fifty thousand was the highest, and we were offering the fifty thousand for base uh, for both points and roto at the time. Oh, wow. So we had two fifty thousand dollar grand prizes out there. We never had anybody win both. No, no, no Lindy's yeah. on our end. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah sounds good. So how many customers do you think was your peak? I mean, you talk about the days when you were like faxing over results to people. Yeah. Fax machines were coming in and going out or whatever, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we peaked at a, a little over uh, uh, 16,500 customers one year in the Diamond Challenge. Wow. And, and um, you know, it was, it was a, um, a bit of a challenge for us. And we had to set up a, a separate mailing operation. So, you know, it was before the internet. So all those reports had to get out in the mail and everything. And we had a machine that was called a Gestetner that we, that we, that we named after Brian's dad. And we, and, uh, and, and, you know, it would run off uh, part of the reports and all that. We, we bought a, a couple of Phillipsburg mailing machines and, and our guys were really smart learning how to stack those things. So when they ran through there, everybody get the right reports and all that. And I made, I made more than one run from from uh, from our offices in our mail center in West St. Louis County, uh, downtown to the St. Louis Post Office, so we could get the reports on the dock before twelve o'clock, so they would get postmarked with that Monday postmark date on side of it. And you know, we'd be running and taking them out of the car and running them up and putting them on the dock and all that kind of stuff. Because as long as you got them on the dock there at the post office before midnight, you know, you got you got the Monday postmark on it. And that, and, you know, the guys really paid attention to that. And no. and if their mail wind up, you know, because mail system in the U.S. never no. was really the greatest. And so they were going out of here on Mondays and guys need to have them by Thursday or Friday so they could be making decisions on yeah. making changes to their team and all that. And, and when that mail showed up on Friday, if it didn't have the Monday postmark on it and they had something else, we were the first person they called. <laughs> and you were late sending your mail out, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and then we'd fax them report for free because – you know, it was our fault, but there were very few times that we didn't we didn't yeah. get them postmarked on that Monday. <laughs> the internet <laughs> made things a lot easier for sure. It's instantaneous, yeah. but uh, we're old enough to have to live through when we had the fax machine and, of course, mailing out. So, what was the years? So, the first years with uh, USA Today was ninety eight, ninety nine. You said two hundred eight and two nine, but I think it was ninety eight, ninety nine. What was the first year yeah. you were licensed then by MLB, and how did well, that come about? Yeah, you know, um, when we were when we were dealing with the sporting news, um, uh, we, we they, they decided that um, uh, that if we could get a license from the Major League Baseball Players Association, that uh, it would make their life easier because of all their dealings they have with Major League Baseball and, and the Players Association. And so, it, it wasn't so much that we really felt like it was a needed thing and we had to have it to be able to do what we were doing. It was more for the convenience of having it. And, and you know, a little bit, you know, being able to stick their logo on the bottom of the ads and all that kind of stuff added credibility to what we were doing, you know. And, and so in the beginning, 
uh, the sport, the, uh, the players association, they didn't want to talk to us. And, uh, and they actually had a subsidiary guy. I want to say it was like Mike Schechter and associates. Sure. And, yeah. and, and so, uh, we wound up talking with this Mike Schechter and associates and wound up getting a license from him, yeah. which he, which was, a, which he represented the major league baseball players association. So it was their license. But, you know, their people didn't want to deal with, he did, you know, so we got the license from him. And I think that was probably in our second year when we wound up, wound up having that license and doing it. And, and uh, you know, it, it turned out to be something that wasn't overly expensive for us. We, we paid them a, a wholesale value, which wound up being 50% of the entry fee a guy would play on playing the game. And we, and we paid him a, a, a percentage based on what that wound up being. Yeah. Uh, never had to pay any royalties on transactions or anything like that so you know i don't think in the early days you know i think it probably ran someplace between five six thousand dollars and maybe twenty thousand dollars for that license fee so yeah. it wasn't like it was something that was a going to cause us not to be able to operate the games it wasn't that yeah. expensive yeah huh, interesting and so you had it that whole time and then what year was it when bob bowman turned you down for a license yeah so uh so as it turned out the 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 the, the players association decided they were going to eliminate mike Schechter. so when they eliminated him that's when i started dealing with olshan at the at the baseball players association we had a pretty good relationship mm -hmm. and uh you know it was little things that used to aggravate him i don't remember but one year he came along and said you can't use Ryan Sandberg in your game because he's not a member of the Players Association. When yeah. it's Barry Bonds, he's not going to yeah. sign a contract. He's not a player, so you can't use him in your game. I said, look, I'm using him in my game. We're using him by his name. You know, if you don't like it, you know, take our license away. But I can't operate a game without having Barry Bonds inside. Right. You know, so right. so that's silly. So we, we we had a little arguments over those things, but but nothing really serious. And then it was, uh, you know, we were already with USA Today and and uh, Gannett. Uh, was prepared to buy us, and and we were we'd gone all the way down the road, and we're uh, crossing the T's and dotting the I's, and and uh, one of the last things that they were looking for was a renewed contract with the Major League Baseball Players Association, and so mm -hmm. you know I'm on the phone with Olsham trying to get this done and everything, and uh, I think it was like maybe 2004, 2005, and and um, and finally. Uh, he, he says to me, he says, well, you know, I'm sorry it's taken so long, but I don't have the right to do that anymore. The Major League Baseball Players Association just sold their rights to Major League Baseball Advanced Media. And I said, well, who the heck are they? And he said, well, that's an organization that's made up 90% by the owners and 10% by some other people, Bob Bowman and some other people. So he says, you'll have to get your license from them. So I said, okay, and, and uh, made, made the call to them and talked to her one of their guys on the phone and, and uh, you know, agreed to fly up to New York with our lawyer and, and, uh, and be able to talk with them about getting this licensing. And, and before we could talk to them, we had to have them find a, sign a disclosure statement because of our contract with Gannett, you know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had a little bit of a hassle getting them to do that. And, and no sooner than the guy comes walking back into the office and, and throws the the signed disclosure statement as on the table, he says, well, you think we're stupid? We know what you guys are doing. You're selling the Gannett. You know, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, this is going to make them happy. They should be happy yeah. working with Gannett and all that kind of yeah. stuff. And and they, and they uh, and he says, no. He says, we don't like Gannett. They run all of these great big sections inside of their newspapers promoting the 
All-Star Game and World Series, and they don't pay any royalties, and we don't get any money off of it at all. You know, they're taking all this money from General Motors, and we don't get any of it. You know, and so they didn't like that any better than they did us. And so when we, we left there with the idea that he was going to call us the next day or two and tell us if he was going to uh, give us a license. And uh, two days later, he called back and said, no, we're not going to give you a license anymore. You guys are done. And uh, for the next year, you can continue to operate the games, and, uh, uh, and we'll pay you a 15% royalty over your revenue, but all the rest of it is ours. And, and, uh, and then after that, you're done, you know. And, uh, and so that's when we decided, well, okay, we need to, we need to do something here. And so we got yeah. a hold of Rudy Telsher and, and uh, Harness Dickey and, and interviewed a couple of lawyers in St. Louis. He was the one that made the most sense for us. And uh, so we actually started the lawsuit by filing a, a declaratory action against them, mainly so we could continue to operate the games. Right. But, right. Um, you know, the, the problem that it caused more than anything else is, is, is with Gannett. You know, that made them very uneasy. Um, it made the sale, you know, put on hold and eventually gone. And, and they also didn't feel very comfortable with leaving their name on the games because now here's this lawsuit out there. So that's really when we started putting the CBM name on the games and, and, and started operating at this CBM's diamond challenge as, as opposed to baseball weeklies. And, um, and then that's kind of how that, that all got started. Yeah, that was a shame. Do you think this was a Bob Bowman thing? I want to bring this up again, just because people don't realize the league itself was trying to shut down the fantasy sports industry to be truthful. Then That's everybody right. would have to come to MLB.com to play a fantasy sports game. They were only <laughs> going to license maybe one or two, maybe ESPN, maybe Yahoo. And then it would yeah. be MLB.com. People don't realize in 2004, 2005, this industry almost changed completely to a monopoly led by major league baseball. Am I correct? Yeah, you're correct. It, they, they, that was no doubt their intention. I mean, they were going to take over all these games. They were going to run as much of it as they could. They, they, I think they said at the time that they were going to have maybe six people that they were going to give licenses to, and and it was the big companies, you know, the ESPNs, uh, uh, the the Yahoos, uh, the people who were operating uh, uh, big games at the time. Uh, CBS was operating games at the time. Sportsline. And uh, those were the ones that they were going to give licenses to. And, and, uh, and most of the small operators were all going to get shut down. And, and, you know, from their standpoint, yeah, what a nice game plan. I mean, you yeah, stop right. and think if they would have been successful, they would have controlled the whole industry and, and would have controlled everybody playing. Everybody would have had to go through them to be able to do it, you know. And, and, uh, and I, I, remember, uh, uh, I remember talking with Clay Walker about it afterwards because he was on the football side of things, but right. basically whatever was going to happen with baseball was going to happen with football and, and the football players association. And, and uh, uh, he just kind of sat back and watched and didn't really have a whole lot to do with it. I, I remember we were up in New York for a business journal uh, convention that they were having up there. And in the middle of about when this was all going on and we actually, they had a breakout session talking about the lawsuit at, at this conference that they had there. And um, uh, at that point, I think uh, Judge Medler had already ruled in our favor and, uh, and, and ruled that uh, we didn't need to have a license for them to operate these games. We can use the players' names there in the public domain. And, and no, we didn't need to have it. And, uh, and, and so Major League Baseball is getting ready to file their appeal. And at the time, uh, there was an opportunity 
that, that um, they could have came to us and made us an offer to, to have Judge Medler vacate her her decision. And and what that would have meant was is that even though the decision was there and that it kind of existed out there that guys could operate fantasy games and people companies could operate fantasy games and not have to pay them royalties. But by vacating it, uh, it gave them the opportunity that they could have gone to the larger companies, the ESPNs and the CBS Sports and the and, and charge them a million dollars a year in royalties to be able to operate games, and those companies would have paid it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that was, if you remember back in the time when we were trying to get them involved in a lawsuit and all that, they said, look, we can't do it because our relationships are so yep. strong with them, not just for fantasy, but for everything else we do. We can't infringe upon losing that. And so it, 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 I remember having that conversation, and uh, and I remember Judy Heater um, <laughs> telling us that, that no, we're not going to ask the judge to vacate the order, and we're going to hire the, the the best uh, law firm we can to to get this decision changed because we're absolutely positive it was that she made the wrong decision, and yep. and and they did. They went and hired a big outfit out of Washington D.C. to handle their appeal and all that kind of stuff for it. But I remember we're in New York. Uh, Clay Walker was just adamant about how upset he was over this yep. whole deal and how upset he was with Heater because. Yep. You know, vacating the decision was the right thing for him and everybody else in the industry to do. Right. They didn't really like having to deal with all the little guys anyway, but they didn't want to. And, and all they really cared about was money and revenue and how much they could generate. And being able to collect it from the big guys would have been more than enough to keep them all happy and, and, and probably put four or five million dollars in their coffers every year and, and not have to aggravate themselves with anybody else. So, uh, if there's a culprit in the whole deal, if there's one person when you go back and look in this whole deal, who's the person that was the biggest screw up and made the worst decision? It was Judy Heater. Yeah, I mean Bob Bowman deserves to be at the top, and maybe Judy next. But what yeah. people don't realize is the league felt that statistics were parts of rights of publicity to the players. They own the statistics that were out in the public domain. They're out right. in the public domain, right? Anybody could yeah. have them, and yeah. yet they felt they owned them. And so we needed to pay. I mean, I was paying 15000 a year to each sport, okay? Yeah. It wasn't yeah. a lot, and we just did it to stay in good graces with the Players yeah. Associations. As Charlie said, Clay Walker was with the NFL Players Association. They were getting millions of dollars a year in licensing. They didn't want to have go over to zero. They didn't want to own the space, and they didn't want to go to zero. They wanted no. that middle part. But yeah. Bob Bowman pushed it and pushed it. And so you guys won, but then it went to an appeal, a three-person appellate court. Is that correct? And then yeah. they voted overwhelmingly in your favor. Yeah, it, there was, there was four, four, different, four different counts to that lawsuit, four different parts of it, along with rights of publicity and being just one of them and, and, uh, and First Amendment rights and things like that. And, and um, that, that three-judge appellate court, um, agreed with us on, on, on all three judges agree with us on all three of the counts. And on one of the counts, one of the judges, uh, one of the three said, well, you know, maybe they might have a, ha- have something here on, on that part of it. But the other two didn't agree with it. So they, they wound up losing on every, on every side of it. So it was a, a big deal. I re- actually remember going down to a television station here in St. Louis to be on ESPN. And I was on there with Bob Bowman. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my biggest fear was is he was going to get a hold of St. Louis Cardinals and find out I had season tickets and say, take those <laughs> tickets away from that guy. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and as silly as it seems, that was actually part of our part of our biggest scare at the time was that, you know, it was a David and Goliath kind of situation. Oh, There's yeah. no doubt about it. 
and and you know you're talking major league baseball and you're talking about supreme court justices and you're talking about attorney generals and people who have skyboxes in washington to yeah. be able to go watch washington national baseball games and these people are friends with major league baseball and friends with the washington nationals you know i mean they had friends in high places yep. and you know part of our fear was is their friends in high places was going to be our biggest problem because they were going to come up with a reason to dispute this thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we were the little guy for sure. But I mean, the entire industry rallied around. I mean, you guys paid for everything. You paid for the lawyers. We as an industry, as a trade association, we did an amicus brief to say they're not the only ones affected. Hundreds of us are going to be affected by this. And I think that did help you guys. But bottom line is you guys took a quarter of a million or whatever it is out of your pocket to pay the lawyers to win this, to really save the industry. I mean, I'm not overstating it, folks. This saved the industry from letting MLB control everything, to be truthful, in the baseball industry. Am I correct? Yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, uh, Glenn Colton writing a brief for us for the Trade Association, you know, definitely helped. And we had a couple other briefs that got, got filed right. also. And, and and those didn't help. And that, and that did help the judge realize that, this right. wasn't just about us and them, that there were a lot of people that were affected by it. And our, our legal fees wound up well over a million dollars in the whole deal. So, and if, yeah. if the, you know, it's, I, I kind of felt, I kind of felt sorry for Rudy Telcher, our lawyer in one, in one respect in that I think every judge's dream is to be able to argue a case be, before the United States Supreme Court, you know? And so, <laughs> so when it got appealed and it went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, there had to be a side of Rudy that was thinking, I'm going to get this chance to argue a case before the United States Supreme Court. So when the Supreme Court came back and said, no, we're not going to hear it, you know, that, that was great for us because that ended it and, and it's over now. And, uh, but I'm sure there was a side of Rudy that thought that would have been fun, but if they did decide to to hear it, that would have meant there was a chance that it could have gotten reversed and overturned and all that kind of stuff. And, and if they would have heard it, they would have cost us a whole lot more money as they would have been preparing to, fight before yeah. the Supreme Court. So we probably would have had another half a million dollars or so involved in it. So it was good it ended when it did. Yes, we didn't want it going any further. It was a resounding one. But how did it affect your company? So now you don't have a promotional partner like USA Today, right? And you've yeah. gone through this and you guys paid over a million dollars. How did it hurt Diamond Challenge and your games? Well, it, it you know, the games themselves did pretty well. And they still lived on through the whole thing without having the big promotional sponsor on it, not having to Sporting News name and the USA Today name on it. And the customers realized we were ones running the games and all that. And they continued to play and they were happy with it. And and we had the feeling that you know, they would continue to. And that we didn't really have to have the big promotional name on it. Our, our contact at USA Today that we had in the beginning, he was long gone and moved on. And, and so we didn't really have an opportunity to go back to sell it to anybody else. But we, we did incur a lot of debt in the doing of it. And... Uh, and, and it was at that point, you know, we started looking for other buyers uh, for no other reason to be able to pay off the debt that we wound up wound up having. And that's when we found uh, Rob Pythian in Fanball. And uh, he was getting ready to, to build a network. And um, uh, and and so uh, we approached him and, and uh, he was interested. And, and I think he might have had a little bit to do with that also at the time. And um, and, and so it, it worked out well. And, and uh, we wound up. Uh, wound up selling to a, a group that was called uh, Fun Technologies, and um, 
Uh, at the time, Fun Technologies was 49% owned by Liberty Media Corporation. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, but they kind of ran their own thing. Well, within nine months of our making the sale and being done, Liberty Media Corporation had taken over the whole thing and had gotten rid of Fun Technologies. So then, we, then we, we're back with a major partner again. Now we're with Liberty Media Corporation. Right. I mean, if you remember, they own DirecTV. Yeah. You know, and so we had these great hopes and aspirations of being able to do things with DirecTV and yeah. having things on the television screen and being able to have fantasy games with DirecTV and and uh, Liberty Media Corporation put us in a different division, and so we <laughs> never never got that opportunity. And as as it turned out, I think what we figured out that that uh, there were some internal things going on in Liberty Media Corporation, and and there were some people who wanted to get rid of some other people, and they were looking for a scapegoat to be able to do it. And we actually got put into division with the guy who was a scapegoat they were trying to get rid of. So when they got the opportunity to shut the whole thing down, and I think I think they ran it for maybe six, seven years uh, is, is, is how long we were Liberty Media Corporation employees and all that. And, uh, and then when they got the opportunity to shut it down, they did. And, uh, and so that's when you know, myself and John Bryce and Henry Eirich and a couple other people uh, bought the games back and and that's when you bought uh, your games back from them also and and, uh, and and did what we did to do but you know our loyal customers stayed through us through thick and thin through all of it and continued yeah. to play the games and everything so yeah yeah liberty media owned the atlanta braves as well we were just like oh yeah. this is awesome and they, <laughs> they ended up buying us and so i worked with charlie and you know it was unique because you were still the salary cap transaction fees and i was at 80 percent paying you know and it was two different games but it was great i think we could have really really survived back then but liberty like you said had internal problems at one point they just said we're done and so yeah. then they had to sell off all the games and they didn't want any of the customers to get hurt credit to them they sold it to me to keep it going that year same with you you were able to yeah. keep it going in 2011 but uh sold we the commissioner service so they sold the commissioner service to rt sports so that yep. all the people yep. in all the leagues were able to continue to do it yeah it was interesting i don't i don't know if you remember this greg but at, at one point in time when you were just getting ready to start doing the high roller games we sat and talked at, at the arizona fall league Oh, absolutely. And, and there was a conference there, and we had this plan to be able to work together and do all this. I remember going back and trying to talk Brian into doing it, and Brian said, no, we don't want to do those kind of games. We don't want to do those kind of games. And, and I thought, oh, no, this is the future. We need to be doing this. But you know, he didn't want to listen to me. Well, I, I did a podcast on the history of the NFBC because this is our 20th anniversary. And I said, I went to the 2003 Arizona Fall League Symposium, or actually 2002 it was. And I was thought about doing this because I had just gone to WCUFF. I saw it. And so yeah. you, me, and John Zaleski were sitting at Phoenix Stadium. It was a freezing night. I remember that <laughs> in yeah. Arizona. I didn't have a jacket at all. And I said, I want to do this. But I said, how many teams would I do? And I don't want to do 12 teams because labor was 12 teams. It was very hard. I wanted a hard one. You said, 14. Zaleski said 16. And I said, I went on the plane. I thought about it. And I was like, there's 30 MLB teams. I'm doing 15 teams. I don't want to agree with either one of these two guys. So I'm going to go right in the middle. It's going to be my own game. And now the 15 team format is just fantastic in the industry. There's too many people that use it and stuff, but now we go way back. We should have been working together because Krause didn't really believe in my concept either. I think if we had grown together, but my margins were small. And so I'm sure uh, Brian said, no, we don't want that. Those margins are too small. But yeah, it is uh, an awful lot of work for not making too much money. (laughs) It's a lot of work, but now how do we do it? It's volume, volume, volume. And the internet is 
just been so good. And, you know, you landed good. We landed good. We ended up getting back together and, and working. So so yeah. talk about the diamond challenge, because I want to do maybe you and I could even do a regular podcast where we can talk about the salaries and the values. And I want to get you involved. But you still like the diamond challenge. You still would play the diamond challenge, right? Oh, yeah, I, I love it. And, and you know, I, I've said this in the beginning and and I've continued to say it, and I still believe it to this day that the guy who wins the, Dal the Diamond Challenge fantasy baseball game is, is the smartest and best fantasy baseball player in the world. And, and the reason for it is, is he's got 100% control over everything that he's doing. You know, we put the salaries in all the different players, but, you know, he has the right to select whatever players he wants to to be able to put on his team. He gets to manage his team However he wants to, he gets to make his changes. He gets to drop guys and pick up new guys. He gets to set his lineup every week based on, on who, he, who he's thinking is going to do the best each week and all that kind of stuff. And, and so at the end of the day, you know, the guy who winds up winning the Diamond Challenge, you know, he's the smartest fantasy baseball player in the world because everybody had the same opportunity to do what he did, but he was able to do it better than everybody else, and that's why he wound up winning. Yep. It's a very tough game. No doubt about it. So here's what I'm going to do right now. And I'll tweet this out later, but we're going to get Charlie in a 15 team league. All right. He's going to compete against 14 other people and he'll be involved in the overall for the $30,000 grand prize and the diamond challenge Roto. Okay. Oh, good. I'm going to win some money. Yeah. You got a chance to win some money <laughs> and uh cost of entry is uh $400. So we're going to give 10% off of $40 off to the next 14 people who sign up with the promo code GODFATHER, all caps, all right? And when we see 14 entries come in with that promo code, we're going to put them in Charlie's league, and then you're going to compete against Charlie for league prizes and overall prizes. And like I said, Charlie and I will do a podcast from time to time to talk about the values, what you should be looking for, how you should spend on pitching versus hitting. I want to have fun with Charlie. He's my good friend in the industry, probably my best friend in the industry, and we've done a lot together. So if you're ready, Charlie, I'm ready to do this with you. I'm, I'm ready. You know, the guys out there shouldn't be intimidated against playing against me. You know, back in the very beginning when we started the game, uh, we, we offered the people an opportunity to play against Carol. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're working on the male ego of I can beat some girl that's doing <laughs> fantasy baseball. But the reality of it was is it was never really Carol running that team. It was me running that team. <laughs> but we just put her name on it to get people to play. And I think it was $10. And if you beat me, you got $25 back. Yeah. And and uh, by the second or third year or so, I found out real quick, you know, and it really hurt my ego an awful lot that I wasn't exactly the, the smartest fantasy baseball yep. player in the world. Yep. And and while I won my share of leagues and have done pretty well over the years and stuff like that, the guys who are playing Diamond Challenge are, are really sharp and really good guys. Guys like Larry Schechter, who's mm -hmm. the only guy who's ever won back-to-back -back years. And and uh, um, and. Uh, you know, a lot of your best players that are that are playing your games these days, they they played Diamond Challenge for many many years, yep. and I think some of that training helps them to be where they are now. But but um, you know, these guys are really sharp. They know what they're doing. They they're they're good on uh, projecting players and and, uh, and and knowing the intricacies of the game and all that kind of stuff. So you know, if I end up uh, above the halfway point, you know, in this fifteen team league, if I end up eighth, I'm going to be happy. You know, because I know these guys out there are pretty sharp, and there's a lot of them out there who would like nothing more than be able to say, I beat the Godfather at his own game. So uh, Absolutely. That, yeah. will, that will make it fun, yeah. Good. So sign up, everyone, and join Charlie. I got to ask you before we go here, 
we've seen how this industry has grown, Charlie, over the 30 plus years we've been involved. Now we see legalized sports betting and how it's changed the industry. We saw DFS. In fact, we were part of DFS, right? Yeah. When it was, what was it called? A snap draft or something like right. that? We were the first ones with snap draft with MSNBC, with NBC. Right, and right out there. Unfortunately, yeah. we weren't as good as FanDuel and DraftKings who came after us and they buried the hell out of us. But, yeah. uh, you know, what, do you, what are your thoughts on this whole change of the industry from the pay to play, obviously, and then DFS and now legalized sports betting prop bets are so big. Yeah. I mean, there's a place for all of it, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, guys and women for that matter, I mean, you know, the sports industry has always been something that really entertains them and it adds to their enjoyment of watching games and watching sports. And you remember from the early research that we did with the Fantasy Sports Trade Association that the correlation between guys playing fantasy sports and gambling really, really wasn't that big, right. you know. Um, everybody who played fantasy sports was willing to gamble, but not everybody that was gambling wanted to play fantasy sports. And so we never felt like, like gambling was taking anything away from us and taking fantasy sports players away. The people who wanted to play the fantasy games were, were going to continue to do it. In fact, I, I had people over the years that told me that, like Mike Siegel from New York, you know, that how much he appreciated having these fantasy sports games because he got that same rush and the right. same thrill of playing in fantasy sports that he did from gambling. And, and it wound up saving, you know, thirty to $50,000 a year but what he was yeah. losing in gambling. So, you know, so he really enjoyed the opportunity to do it. And, and, and I think that's still true today. The people who love playing fantasy sports and they love the challenge of it and the enjoyment and adds to their entertainment of watching the – Watching the team, watching Sports Center, and watching the highlights, and checking the box scores to see how your guys did the next day. Um, you know that's that's never going to change. You know we've got an audience of 30 million people who love playing fantasy sports, and if anything, I think it just continues to grow because as as people play and as people who haven't played before try it and they see how much fun it is and they like it, they continue to play. And and yeah, there'll always be people who are going to want to gamble and and and. Uh, and, and, and take their shot at doing it. But the, the relationship between playing a fantasy game and, and being able to gamble is, is, is a lot different. You know, that immediate gratification you get from gambling is wonderful. You know, and we've all enjoyed it the few times we've won. Yeah. But, you know, in fantasy sports, that immediate gratification takes a period for you to be able to get it. And I think when you do wind up winning at the end, you feel so much more satisfied for having won your fantasy league because – of the time and effort it took for you to be able to do it. So, yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's industry's really changed over the time. You know, when the DFS thing came, came along here a few years ago, yeah, more than a few now, I guess. But, uh, you know, there were some of us that, that felt like their end game play here, especially with DraftKings and FanDuel, because we were watching what they were doing. We were sending, yep. seeing the money that they were spending. They were losing money at what they were doing, raising big sums of money to get customers and all that. We kept thinking – what are they doing this for? How are they ever going to make any money? Their margins are so thin. Well, some of us had the feeling that their end game was gambling and that sports yep. gambling was going to become legalized in this country and that they would have the world's largest sports books and be able to like make a lot of money with them. And I, and that's basically what's happened. And that's where DraftKings and FanDuel are today. And I'm sure most of their revenue now is getting generated from gambling. It's not from their daily games. 
Right. They never made any money on DFS, that's for sure. But they sure got a lot of customer lists and they can promote all their their software for legalized sports betting in those states to all those customers for sure. You know what? The the beauty, though, of fantasy and this is how it all started in our local leagues is the camaraderie, the community. And that's where I try to do with the live events. I want guys to meet each other and to get to know each other and to come together and have fun together. That's the beauty of it. And so I think camaraderie and community and fantasy will always separate from betting sports yeah yeah i mean i mean i remember over the years fathers and sons getting together and running a team together you know and and i'd have a dad call me on the phone and was answering phones and and tell me how how important it was that this came along his son he hadn't talked to in five years and had very little to talk about they were sharing this team and now they talked every week once or twice and and how wonderful that was for him and valuable to be able to do it and help help rekindle their relationships and all that kind of stuff and you know and getting to know other people in the industry i mean i remember back in the back in the day you know there would be a bunch of cdm guys who would have a league that they would be playing in out in vegas and in your game and they would all go out and they'd be drafting against each other but they'd all get together the night before and we sit around talking we actually did it we had a cdm league where we put all these guys in and they all drafted together and played against each other and it was getting to know all those guys and having fun with them that, uh, you know, that really, really was one of the most important aspects of, of doing all this is building relationships. You know, it's yep. just so, so valuable. Yep. All right. Well, that's what we're going to continue to do here. And like I said, Charlie and I will do a podcast from time to time. Diamond Challenge. Jump in. Play it. $30,000 grand prize for the Roto Contest. 15000 for the Points Contest. Entry fees of four hundred and two hundred and fifty dollars, but you can save forty by going Godfather. Wow. Type it in with all caps. All right, Charlie it was great talking to you. I got to get down to St. Louis. We got to share some beers together at a Cardinals game again. Yeah, come see your brother and visit me. <laughs> well, I'll do that. Okay. How's that? All right, thanks, Charlie Wiegert, right there. I'll have another podcast next week. All right, thanks everyone for tuning in. See ya. Thanks, Greg. You bet, Charlie.